Well, Merry Christmas, y'all. Oh, I think you could do better than that. Merry Christmas, y'all. That's good. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Scott Weatherford. If you're in town visiting relatives, we hope you survive the holiday. You know, as, as the choir, Dan was leading the choir and singing, listening for the shout, I wonder how many of y'all that described your Thanksgiving dinner. You were hoping the Lord would come back. No, we've, we've had a great experience at the Weatherford house. My oldest brother, David, has been with us. I'm not going to point him out. You can find him. I think he's here. I heard Tara clear her throat, so I think they're here this morning. I don't know where they are. They're somewhere in the room. But uh, you guys could, uh, could greet him and meet him. We love David. Glad he's here. Uh, David has come to visit the beautiful hill country of Texas, and we're glad to have him here. And I know you have uh, relatives you're glad to have here. And I think David is glad that he's going home today. But uh, we're glad that he's been with us, with visiting with us. That was supposed to be funny. Are you guys okay? Did you eat too much turkey? Are we in a tryptophan coma right now? Let me share something exciting. Uh, Tara and I are going to go back to Israel, and we'd love to take you with us. Brochures are available in the back. You can pick one up and see the details of the, of the trip and uh, a trip of a lifetime. There's a few folks in our congregation who's been with us, and they'll tell you it's a trip of a lifetime. Now, David is visiting us from Florida, and that's where I grew up, on the beaches of the panhandle of Florida, the most beautiful beaches in the world. And I am a beach guy. I love the ocean. I feel more at home in the ocean than anywhere else or in water. Matter of fact, anywhere else. I love that. And I surfed up until about five years ago. Last time I was in the water, the uh, Save the Well people kept pushing me back out to sea. And so I had to give up surfing. But I love the, the water. Now, Tara, she loves the mountains. Isn't that kind of how God works things? He, uh, you know, opposites attract. Do you know that? And when they get married, opposites attack. But Tara loves the mountains. And she was always saying, let's go to the mountains. Let's go to the mountains. And I said, no, we're going to go to the beach. And, you know, uh, vacations or whatever. In fact, you know, being a pastor, vacations were really just going to somebody else's house for a free stay, basically. And my parents lived at the beach. We'd go to the beach. We'd surf and all those kind of things. And, but Tara always wanted to go to the mountains. And I never would go. So God, in his mercy and grace, he moves us to Canada, to the Canadian Rockies. And there we were. They were right there in front of us. In fact, we could wake up in the morning and see the grandeur of the Rockies out our bedroom windows. Kind of amazing. And Calgary was an amazing, beautiful city. Still is. And Tara loved to hike. She would go out in those beautiful foothills and those mountains and she would traipse around and be caught up in the splendor of the, the vastness of the Rockies. And in fact, I've discovered this. The mountains and the beach have a lot in common. And that's vastness. You have those existential moments when you discover how insignificant you are and how majestic God is at both of those locations. Terry even had a hiking ministry where on Thursdays, a bunch of girls would go hike out in the woods and they would traipse around. And then on Fridays, usually my day off, Tara would take me often on those same kind of, of hikes. And we would enjoy the mountains together. One day she says to me, we're in Banff, a beautiful little city nestled in a crevice of the Rocky Mountains. We're in Banff. And she says to me, let's climb Mount Sulphur. I said, huh? She let's climb Mount Sulphur. And Les Bombenard, our Canadian friend, was there. And he says, hey, I'll guide you guys up Mount Sulphur. Let's climb Mount Sulphur together. In a moment of weakness, I said, okay, let's go. 
It's a dead gum mountain, y'all. It ain't Mount Baldy, it's Mount Sulphur. Now, it's not the biggest mountain in the Canadian Rockies, but nonetheless, it's a mountain, which it's switchbacks. Do you know what switchbacks are for? Because it's too dead gum steep to climb straight up it. And so we began traversing in the snow up sulfur, and Tara was just enraptured in the glorious view of the mountains. And I was sweating and cramping and thinking I was going to die. She had glimpses of vastness. I had glimpses of eternity. In fact, at one time she turned and looked at me and said, you're ashened. I said, because I'm dying here. And we finally made it up to the top of Mount Sulphur. And it has a weather station up there. And it's just, you climb up there in Sulphur and then you overlook the vastness of the Rockies. It just unfolds before them. It reminds me when Lewis and Clark made it to the Rockies. They climbed up one mountain, think they were going to see the Pacific Ocean on the other side, only see the Rockies cascading before them. I'm sure they were as encouraged as I was that day. And then as I was caught up in the vastness of it, a song came to my mind that we sang today. Go tell it on the mountain. Go declare the hope that Jesus Christ is born. And that song kind of just reverberated in my heart that we need to announce the great news, the hope that Christ brings. Because in this holiday season, there's so many people that struggle with darkness and depression and lack hope. And today, I would encourage you with that. That Christ has come and there's hope. And there's hope that's not some kind of euphoric feeling or a self-medicated inducement of grandeur or glory. But absolutely the hope of the presence of Christ in our lives. Hope has come, and hope is not a feeling. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. And let's stand looking at that mountain, thinking about the songs. And of course, being a preacher, I wanted to preach. Then I realized we had to climb back down the mountain, only to discover a wonderful invention called a gondola. And the gondola, it cost you to ride up the mountain, but it was free coming back. So maybe that was Tara's motivation to save a little money, climb and make me exercise a bit. But we rode down the gondola. And that wasn't the last mountain we traversed. We traversed many mountains. But the whole process is this. I want to declare to you from the highest pinnacle, highest place, that Jesus is born. And we're going to go tell it today. Then I want to encourage you to find the mountaintop of your relational connection and share it. Because Christ has come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what you're going to say to us through your word this morning. And I pray that you'll speak through me. They'll not be my words or thoughts, but Father, your truth that will encourage these people who've gathered here on this weekend of Thanksgiving, the beginning of the Christmas season. And I thank you for how faithful you are. Thankful how good you are, how kind you are, how gracious you are. And so Father, we want to lean in and listen today because we need to hear the declaration from the mountain that Christ the Savior has been born. And we pray this in your strong name. Amen. I want to invite you to take out your Take the Weekend With You notes. Jot down some notes. Might be some things that we'll say today that you want to remember or repeat later. I'll also remind you that online, we have a Christmas devotional available for you. You can go to our website, uh, fbcwimberly.com, and you can see this Christmas devotional. Now, we are not a liturgical church. I say that. Actually, what we are is a free-form liturgical church. What does that mean? We do what we want to. That's what it means. 
But in the spirit of getting ready for Christmas, we are going to kind of seize on some of the ancient uh, movements of, of liturgy, the Advent. And, and not necessarily in the formality of lighting candles or reading certain scriptures, but to take you on the journey to getting you ready for Christmas Eve and King Jesus. Christmas Eve, we'll have three gatherings here, three, five, and seven, to encourage people to come to hear about sweet little Jesus boy. And every one of these messages leading up to Christmas, I kind of seized on a Christmas song that might help us remember what we're doing. And today, in true kind of quote-unquote liturgical form, we're going to look at the Old Testament. And we're going to hear what the prophets said about King Jesus. And of course, the prophet who had the most to say about Jesus was Isaiah. And Isaiah, he was in a tough place with the tough people. He was in a transition period between what God wanted and what the people desired. And I'll tell you something, y'all, what you want, if it doesn't line up with what God wants, you're going to have a hard time. And Isaiah was the prophet in that epoch of history. And he began to prophesy about hope that's coming. Now we're not like them where we look ahead we are ones who look behind and see that the promises have been fulfilled. So I want to share with you the hope of Christ as prophesied by Isaiah and made a reality by King Jesus. And that's a declaration that the hope is coming. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, it says this. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, a light has shone. Isaiah was writing to a desperate people. Now, I don't want to get into a lot of history because you kind of eyes glaze over. No offense, David. He's a history professor. He gets into a lot of history. But in this period of time, these people of Judah, they had just witnessed their brothers to the north in the kingdom of Israel be overrun by the Assyrians and completely their whole civilization obliterated. The Assyrians, when they would come in and conquer a people, they would tear down everything about their civilization and they would replant their people because they wanted their, their conquered folks to become Assyrians. They didn't want to have any vestige of, of their old culture, their old way, and they would take another people group and they would plant them or, or import them or exile them into the land that they conquered. So the Jewish people were watching this. To, that's why we call Jews Jews because they're from Judea. And they were watching this and they saw this. And Isaiah said, hey, 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 this is going to happen to you if you don't straighten up. And they were living in a land of deep darkness and deep despair. And Isaiah was giving them this hope. He said, there's hope coming. They're saying, when? When? And Isaiah was prophesying about 700 years before Jesus showed up. When? Have y'all ever noticed God's sometimes a little slow? Oh, he's always right on time. Do you ever pray and give God suggestions about how he might move on a matter? Oh, nobody responded. I'll preach on lying next week. That's right. We do that. We say, God, if you'll do this, this, and this. Have you ever make a deal with God? Well, these people were so far off, they weren't even doing that. They were living in the shadow of darkness. They needed hope. And I want to tell you something, folks. We do as well. As society turns and shapes, and, and we're not held captive by some invading country, but we're held captive by the oppression of life, by the pressure of children, by the pressure of finances, by the pressure 
of politics. Y'all, the older I get, the more I realize that politics ain't going to save us. And it really doesn't matter who's the congressman, who's the president. As long as King Jesus is King Jesus, we're going to be all right. And I think about this in the desperation. And we live right on the edge of Austin. And the statement is to keep Austin weird. Is that not? I've heard somebody say that Austin is the blueberry in the cherry pie of Texas. And I've discovered this. It doesn't matter if you lean left or right. It matters if you lean on Jesus. That's what matters. Because in this darkness of those oppression, but throughout scripture and throughout life, God is the one who brings light and hope into dark places. Now, when Isaiah was writing this, he wasn't thinking he was writing the Bible. Did you know that? He wasn't thinking I'm writing holy text that would be read some 2,700 years from now by a group of people in the middle of Texas. Heck, he didn't even know where Texas was. Bless his heart. And he, he, was, he didn't realize that God was breathing through him these words of inspiration. But you do. You do. And the, just the, the profound nature of what Isaiah has written about what was going on in life and current circumstances really comes invading to us in our lives. John, who years later would write this about Jesus in his gospel, said this, in him, that's Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. Was John thinking about Isaiah when he said the people that lived in a land of darkness, a great light is shown? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because John, who was a fisherman, became the scholar because of Jesus. And Jesus had illuminated John's mind and John's life. And he said, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not, nor it will overcome it. I love that. I love that from a practical standpoint. The older I get, the more precious a nightlight is. If you know what I mean. I don't understand why the television you put in your bedroom has a red light that shines on that shows that it's turned off. That light will light up a universe when you're trying to go to sleep. Even that small insignificant light overwhelms the darkest room. In fact, when it's darkest, the light shines brighter. Light shines brighter. You know, we in Wimberley, we live in what's called a dark sky city. Why do we do that? Because we're wicked and vile and we like the dark things of life. Right? No. We want to know that the stars at night are big and bright. Where? Oh, bless God. You see all that to say this, that no matter how dark your circumstances are, overwhelmed you are. The light has come and the light shines. Open your eyes. Last night I was driving home after giving what I thought was a subpar message to the few folks that were here. 
And I started thinking about Christmas's past. I almost had an Ebenezer moment. Ebenezer Scrooge, that is, just in case you guys aren't up with Charles Dickens. And I was thinking about the, some of the joys of past Christmases and some of the heartache of past Christmases. Some of the darkest times. The first Christmases we experienced without the ones we love being there. The Christmases that Tara and I spent in Canada in an airport flying down to to see our family because our family could not come to Canada. One Christmas in particular, instead of being full of pity for ourselves, we served Christmas dinner to people at our church. And on that one particular Christmas day, we served over 400 people Christmas dinner with games and fun and singing and laughter. And there might've been a sermon from a pastor as well. And what I realized is that darkness flees from my life when I fix my eyes on the one who is the light of the world. And he changes me and the light illuminates my heart and loosens my hands for generosity. And that's why I have to share this with you guys. That's why I have to stand on the mountaintop of this stage and declare to you, Christ is born. Lift up your heads. Christ has come. And the declaration of the character of hope is the declaration of Jesus. Isaiah goes on to say some very powerful things. Now you read chapter nine, verse two, and then you start reading down about what the world's going on. He talks about the trampling boot of the warrior and all that. And the contemporary people reading that and they're going, yes, what happened up North with our brothers in Israel. And then he says this for, for unto us, a child is born to us. A son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now look at this. This is a messianic prophecy. This is Isaiah through the illumination of the Holy Spirit looking into the future and seeing things that are coming. Now, let me say this to you because you need to know this. Today, we have quote unquote prophets on TV. Have y'all ever watched them? And I heard one guy say the other day, this prophet has a 33% accuracy rate. (laughs) Did you know in the Old Testament, if you got it wrong once, they stoned you to death? You better be careful calling yourself a prophet. So I'm a non-prophet, y'all. And so Isaiah was saying this, it's coming. Now let me say something else about the understanding of the contemporary reader. This was nothing new. Because they heard in every other false belief system, stuff like this was brewing up. In fact, there was a a, a religious uh, group that were saying that a virgin named Samaria had a baby named Tammuz. She was a virgin who conceived a child and he was eaten by animals and he resurrected after three days. And it was a lie cooked up by Satan to confuse what was coming. So we don't read this with full knowledge of what they heard and saw. And Isaiah was saying these things, some people 
roll their eyes. And some people found their hope. Which are you? Which are you? Are you an eye roller? Are you a holy roller? Not literally. You're too old. You'll break a hip. Broken hips kill old people. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now listen to this, this explanation of Jesus. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the Wonderful Counselor. What does that mean? Does that mean that you could stretch out on Jesus' couch and he could figure out all the things your parents did to mess you up so bad? Hmm. No. It means he has the wisdom to give you direction in your life. That the government being upon his shoulders means he's the one who could bring systematic structure to you that will cause you to live a life for his glory and your good. That he is the one who knows and has the wisdom to know how your life should be built and how you should live. The wonderful counselor would say to you, you should be connected to me through a personal relationship with me and you need to be connected to a family because a Christian without a church family is a spiritual orphan. He says, you need to grow to be like me. So you'll have my character so you can think like me, speak like me, uh, hear like me and have the mind of Christ. You need to serve me by serving other folks because when you serve, you break the grip of selfishness and you destroy the root of narcissism that springs up in every one of us. And then you need to share this thing that you've experienced with others because saved people share about the salvation. They share about their hope. They become contagious, not obnoxious. He said, that's a life of a wonderful counselor is counseling you to live a life built by God. Hmm. And he's the power to take your old broken life and make it new. Not to obliterate you because he loves you and he created you to be you. There's only one Scott Weatherford in the world. Can I get an amen? amen. Heard my wife say it louder than anybody. But Scott wants Scott to become like Jesus so he can live like Jesus as he's made Scott to live like Jesus. That's the miracle of transformation the miracle. He's the wonderful counselor, but he's also the mighty God. He is so much God that while nursing at the breast of his teenage mother, he could have spoke the worlds out of being. Hmm. He's so much God and so much power that he knew the hearts of men and he didn't trust himself to anyone for he knew their hearts. He's so much God, he could take two fish and five loaves and feed 5,000 men and the comrades that are around him. He's so much God, there's no limit to his ability. No devil who could resist him. No disease that could defy him. No disaster that could befall him. He's that much God. John again said it this way, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. The glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Peter said it this way. 
We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. I find it interesting. The disciples experience with Jesus is revealed in the gospels that um, Jesus was you're living among them. He would touch a leper and they would be healed. He would speak to a blind man or he'd spit in the ground and rub mud in his eye and they'd be healed. He even going through the city of Nan, he raised a dead boy to life. He gave him back to his mother. And these disciples going, dang, do you see that? That's cool. But you know when they worshiped him? When he walked on the water and he saved their sorry hides. He was just a miracle worker when it was to somebody else. He became their master and their savior when it became personal. And he saved them. And that's how much God he is. When you go with me to Israel, you'll go to these places where God walked. But I could take you by the hand in this place and show you the places God has walked because he's trod his, his soles of his sandals across my sin-soaked heart and changed me. He's the everlasting father. What in the world does that mean? That means he's the father of eternity. There's none like you. Again, Isaiah is stating the deity of God who was coming. And this is the hope that he was bringing. I wrote this down. I put it on the screen because I want you to get this. If you're looking for anything that is eternal, you have to look at Jesus. You only get the eternal from Jesus. You're not going to get it from college football. Did you know that? You're not going to get it from your bank account. Do you get that? You'll get it from Jesus. You'll get it from Jesus. And finally, Isaiah said he's the prince of peace. And Jesus is our peace. He's the author of our peace. He's the purveyor of our peace. He's the one who brings us peace. And the peace of Jesus is based on his character and his power and his promises. Again, John said it this way. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This is what Jesus said. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Because the world may give you a period of respite, but not a presence of peace. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Man, the answer to a troubled heart is Jesus. The answer to a fearful mind is Jesus. Jesus. Had someone asked me about the Israel trip today and they said, you know, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm going to be safe. And I asked the question, I said, so if it's your time, do you believe in the sovereignty of the Lord? Yes. I said, if it's your time, does it matter if you're here or you're in Israel? Does it? Live with no fear, Beloved. Fear cripples you, but the Prince of Peace frees you. You're immortal until God's finished with you. You will not die, but live to declare what God has done. Live without fear. Finally, there's the declaration of hope. 
for the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's army will do this. And so there's a promise there. And I was reading this, I'm reminded that maybe this spring, I haven't decided fully yet. I'm looking at two different sermon series to, to talk, to teach you through. One of them, I was going to take you through the book of John and show you the signs of Jesus's deity through the book of John. I was going to do that. Or I was going to take you through the covenant promises of God up to King Jesus. That you look at the, the Edemic covenant and the, the Noadic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant, this is what Isaiah's talking about right here. Then we're going to look at the covenant of King Jesus. Which one do y'all want? I oh, will just do both then. Okay. But you look at this process and Isaiah is saying, this thing that you know about, that David is going, kingdom is going to reign forever and ever and ever. I'm going to promise this through this. I'm going to prophesy this through the promise of King Jesus. Now we're, we're not ones who read Isaiah. We're looking ahead. They were looking ahead for hope is, is coming. We're looking back that hope has come and hope was wrapped in claws, lying in a manger, resting, Ray being raised in a know nothing village by impoverished parents, building structures only then to begin to build lives, living among us sinlessly, perfectly dying for us in our place, only to be raised in glorious resurrection, to be the king of glory and the king of hope. He's been born to us. And I can't help but declare that on the mountain, for the longing of my heart has been met, has been found in the promise of King Jesus. And beloved, this is the hope you need. This is the hope I need. Because Christ has come and he's changed everything. As I said earlier, sulfur was not the last mountain we climbed. Tara took me down to uh, the Wharton Provincial Park. It's right across from Glacier National. And we climbed up Bertha, up to the Bertha Lake, 10,000 feet. While we were climbing that mountain, some guy came running by us without his shirt on, running up the Dadgum Mountain. And then before we got to the top, he came running back. I thought, what is wrong with him? Tara looked at him and she looked at me and she just shook her head. Because I almost died going up Bertha. I don't care that much about seeing a lake, y'all, okay? But every mountaintop we traversed, the same thought came. Christ the Lord is born. And I can't help but tell it. So here's some thoughts for you. If you need a rescue, Jesus is your hope. If you need a healing, Jesus is your hope. If you need forgiveness, Jesus is your hope. If you need a mended relationship, Jesus is your hope. If you need the longest of your heart met, Jesus is your hope. There's a hope, and his name is King Jesus. And I declare to you, Christ has been born.